Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist now employed as Associate Vice President with Campus Labs. And joining me again today is Zach, uh, our new anarcho-communist friend. Zach, glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Will. So let's start with an issue that I think might be of interest to you, given um, some of your political leanings and political background, and that's what's going on in Venezuela. Um, where obviously we still have um, an internal battle going between Nicolas Maduro and Juan Guaido, uh, and then obviously we have the impact of the United States' influence on this in terms of recognition um, by President Trump and now being echoed by by many in D.C. Uh, so what's your view on what's happening in Venezuela? What background do you want to provide for listeners on this, Zach? Well, I would I would like listeners to, to be conscious of previous U.S. interference in Latin American politics. Uh, it's the place that we feel the most comfortable intervening. It's the place that we've had the most success historically. And it's also the place that has rebuked us the hardest uh, most recently. Maduro, uh, for what it's worth, I, d- I don't support Maduro, but I do support the, the movement that he is in front of. Uh, and, and what's going on right now is, one, Trump wants another win, so he's he's pushing for this. But we're openly calling for a coup. We are funding military attempts. We're, we're, we're definitely funding attempts to get military officers to lead a coup. Uh, we are telling a sovereign nation that we do not recognize its president. We just recognize the opposition leader, which, of course, is... It's such a meaningless statement like, oh, well, this this guy opposes the president. He's the president now. I mean, it's comical to think that anyone takes that seriously. And you've got you've got a handful of our our allies jumping, jumping in on this one. Uh, it's it's really disturbing to me because while Venezuela has problems, it also has a ton of positive things that no one ever mentions. Their human development index is high. They've built millions of homes for the poor. They've the Bolivarian Revolution has provided a lot of gains. Uh, I'm looking here what more than five million computers, over a hundred million tech textbooks, the students across the country, more than twenty thousand schools have received new computer equipment, uh sixth in the world in terms of enrollment in primary education. Yeah, you know, Latin America has historically been very damning to people of different sexual orientations, to the uh, indigenous communities to women, and they have made huge strides as far as those rights are concerned. So Maduro inherited a government that that had made a ton of strides, and he's obviously, like any government, he's not the sole participant in, in governing and in executing uh, policy. And so a lot of the people have, have continued these positive strides, but... They obviously have shortages. They're having hunger. They're having very dire crises at the same time. And so we have decided that we're going to attempt to institute a coup. We're going to uh, slander them internationally. Uh, we're going to put some of the craziest people we have on the job. Uh, Elliot Abrams has been added to the coup team, who, of course, was part of Iran-Contra. And he was detrimental to Latin America throughout the 80s, and he was pardoned by uh, George W. Bush. We've also got John Bolton telling him 
telling Maduro that <laughs> he needs to accept uh, Guaido's offer of amnesty or find himself in the Guantanamo Bay prison, which is, of course, terrifying to hear uh, federal national I thought we closed it. Him. What's up? I thought we closed it. Oh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think it's I think it's closed. I think Cuba's totally okay with that. You know, they've they've taken it back over and they're now using the port that we've occupied for a hundred years. Yeah, no, it's it's very it's very scary to me. And like I said, I, I don't personally support Maduro. I do support the movement. And it's it's just such an undermining of legitimacy. But let me ask you about that, Zach, because here's where I get torn on this. Because I agree with you. Face value, I'm normally opposed to us going into other countries and telling them what to do. But in this case, the National Assembly used the Venezuelan Constitution to declare Maduro an illegitimate candidate and vacated the presidency. So how do, where does the legitimacy fall when it's both us taking an action on an executive level but a country's popularly elected legislative body having previously taken kind of the same action? I agree. It's a it's a tough question, and it's not one that either you nor I nor anyone in the U.S. should should make. True. That is a Agreed. Venezuelan sovereign issue, and we love to talk about democracy, uh, except for when it's really in power. And Venezuela has had some of the most highly monitored, cleanest elections in the world. They're they're one of the most monitored places, and it, you know it was all because. They called they called Chavez illegitimate. Well, the fact is he wasn't. The most recent election uh, has had some some issues, and you know there's legitimacy questions there. But but again, we're just beating the war drum because I think they think this could be an easy win. Um, there are tons of quote unquote dictators that we do business with that are not of the left that we have no issue with. Uh, so. This is I think they think that Venezuela's current uh, government will fall soon and they'd like to be seen as part of it. They'd like to get back in on the oil game. They would like those resources that they've been denied for so long. There's loans to give to those people, you know. Yeah, it's that that is a factual point to this. Um, I guess where I just get confused. I mean, I, I look at Venezuela today and I look at Venezuela under Chavez, um, especially in the the later part of Chavez's reign, and it feels less threatening to me. Um, why is and that? I, and I can't pinpoint why that is, but I feel like, you know, even with Maduro, there was at least less concern for the U.S. perspective. Was that a fair assumption by me, or is that something that, you know, you know, what has changed that's led to this this push now versus previously when it felt like there was a more there was a more direct threat. It was definitely more directed. Um, What's caused that? Uh, I don't believe that there was a threat. I mean, the only threat that Chavez offered to the United States was that he paid off all of the IMF loans. I believe Venezuela was the first country to ever fully pay off their IMF loans in Latin America. They were crushed by them. Uh, there was there was never a threat to the United States from Venezuela, in my opinion. We have been an open threat to them. You know, it was funny because like Maduro kept kept saying that there was going to be a U.S. coup or that the U.S. wanted them dead. People were like, oh, you're just paranoid. Then it turns out, yeah, there was, and there still is. So, you know, Chavez Chavez pulled the country up pretty severely. And unfortunately, 
like so many other nations, they have largely based their economy on one commodity. Now, through global machinations, that one commodity for Venezuela is no longer sufficient. So they're in they're in trouble. Uh, I, f- I do find that interesting, though, that you, you considered Chavez a threat, whereas now maybe it's just because Chavez was more visible. You know, I think Chavez was he spoke more threat language. I think gotcha. Chavez was much more direct and again, maybe not direct threats, but the language of the allies, I think, just put him into a grouping um, mm-hmm. that made the appearance of threat, to be honest. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, Venezuela, you know, made the unspeakable mistake of being allies with Russia and Iran and and now, of course, we want to be allies with Russia, but not Iran. Um, they're 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 similar to Cuba, you know. Socialist nations are under constant attack. They always have been since 1917, when the Russian Revolution happened. It's been an immediate threat as soon as it comes into place, and so they they took action to increase their their resource base and their allies, and they. Whether or not they chose people that we consider or considered at the time, at least enemies, right? Whether they did that as a provocation of the United States is a question or not. But there's also, you know, we've got we've got a lot of pull with other countries, and when we tell them not to do business with people, that's what happens. Uh, I I don't think that there was ever a threat to the United States from Venezuela. If anything, right now is the closest that we would come to a threat just because we're openly beating the war drum. And again, I mean, for me, it's it just comes back on this one where I recognize that there's a, a disconnect here where I would argue that I, you know, it's not that I'm I it's not that I have personal stake in this either way. I don't think this directly impacts the average American life in any way, shape or form. Um you know, I would sit there and say that understanding what Venezuela has done in the National Assembly makes me feel like they've followed the process um, laid out in their constitution, which would lead to Guaido being being the president. But then I also recognize, you know, me saying that another country should follow popular sovereignty after watching the Electoral College save Trump into the presidency seems counterintuitive or just, <laughs> you know, just not correct. So it's kind of another one that personally tears me both ways. Um, but again, to your point, I agree. I don't think it should be necessarily up to us sitting on the outside to make these decisions. I just, when I look at it as the National Assembly has sat there and done this, uh, let them fill the power vacuum. Um, let them fill the gap. Let them kind of choose how that works. Um, if they want to talk about rule of law, let's make sure that they're following their own. Uh, and the best way for them to do that, as you pointed out, is for them to actually control that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know the the constitutional um, intricacies of Venezuela. I'm, I'm not overly familiar with how their government is constituted. So if you know, if if what you're saying is correct, and according to their previous legislation and constitutions, et cetera, if that's what should happen, then that's what should happen. But this similar scenario happens all the time and we don't get involved. And I, I think that's what should happen. Now, if they start, I don't think this would ever be the case, but if they started slaughtering people, yeah, perhaps we, we step in, but you know, cries about humanitarian crises in Venezuela of recent were never heard in the eighties and nineties when the populace was by far worse off in general. 
and we were profiting from, you know, extortion loans. Yep. Speaking of potential socialist presidents, let's switch gears here for a minute. <laughs> Speaking um, of illegitimate future <laughs> elections. <laughs> um, obviously, we know that Mike and Jay on the show talk pretty regularly about 2020 and some of the presidential candidates and the hopefuls and what's happening in the race. But obviously, Zach, having you on the show, um, bringing a different view from the left, I thought it'd be especially important that we, we kind of talk about this today, and I haven't really had a chance to weigh in on this during the show yet either. Um, so looking at 2020 and when we look at the candidates, um, who do you like? Who do you not like? I mean, let's just start big picture in terms of the folks we already know are running, the folks we think might be running. What do you see the field looking like? Uh, I'm already exhausted thinking about it. Uh, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to state that, you know, our, our electoral campaigning process is unlike anywhere else in the world. You know, lots of countries limit it to two months, uh, or, or even less. And I, I'm a big proponent of that. Um, but that being said, the ones that are currently in the race, whatever that even means, um, I like Elizabeth Warren. I don't think she could win, but I've, I've enjoyed her policies and politics in the past. Uh, I don't like Cory Booker. I don't, Kamala Harris is interesting, but I don't like prosecutors. I, while I would, while I would really enjoy for Bernie to be involved with this, I've been a huge Bernie supporter since way before 2016. Uh, I followed him for a very long time. I don't want Bernie to run because I don't think old people should be running the country again. I think youth is what needs to, what needs to be up there. So hopefully some more youthful, progressive, non, non-standard, non-typical Democrats throw their hat in the game. Uh, I also think. Who would you see that being like? Just out of curiosity before you continue with your list. Yeah, I re- I really don't know. That's, that's what I, I'm trying to think of a name. Like, I mean, is it Beto? Is it? I don't know. People love him. He's, he's fairly standard for me. I, a lot of the people that I, that I like are very recent. You know, um, the woman from Detroit, I really enjoy her. Uh, I can't, I can't give you an answer, uh, honestly, which is, which is part of the problem, right? Like our options are, are being forced on us as like, oh, well, it's going to be Joe Biden because we've got to get back to the center. No, no. What about somebody close to you? What about Sherrod Brown? Uh, I I don't know. I share I, those feelings on Sherrod Brown. It's a perfect sound for it. Yeah, it's. I don't know. I I would I would say that Beto's not a bad bet as to someone that gets fairly far in this in this race. But I don't know. I'm 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 interested to see what Bernie does and if he hopefully he doesn't run. Hopefully he's part of a very integral part of someone's campaign and I would based on the similarity that I have with his choices in the past I would imagine that whoever he gets behind if it's not himself will probably be who I align myself with got it and do you and let me ask this because this is always the question and this is what we hear from a lot of readers um or listeners that listeners especially on the far left 
um, looking at pro-Bernie feel like they're they're not recognized by the traditional Democratic Party, and that, as you mentioned, that the electoral system almost works against them um, in a lot of ways in terms of minimizing the impact. And they'll make the points that, you know, more Americans agree with Bernie Sanders and AOC than they do the average Democrat or Republican. They just can't get a candidate past the the point that they need to actually be successful in American elections. Would that make you feel like your voice had been heard if that's what you end up with candidate-wise in terms of picking who a proxy basically chooses to support? More so than if the DNC picks it. Uh, yeah, I, I I suggest to people all the time that if, if they're registered Democrats, they should leave. They should leave the party. They should make those numbers dwindle, and they should they should join alliances that they more accurately align with. I think the two-party system in general is garbage. I wish the Libertarian Party was stronger. I wish the Green Party was stronger. And, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, which uh, AOC is a member of, you know, I think that's a, I think it's a great option. It's, it's really been revitalized since Trump left. It's numbers of like, I don't know. I bet, I bet before Trump got elected, their, their membership numbers are like 5,000 and I bet now they're close to 60 or 70 or something. You know, there, there are real efforts taking place. And I, I think that people, if they are on the left, should leave the Democrats to one, send us, send a sign, right? Send a message. And two, I think they should properly align with the people that they actually support and then use that to put pressure on the Democrats. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's just for me when I look through this list to somebody who, as of today, will likely end up voting again for Trump unless something jumps off the page. I mean, it's just the list. There's so many names and there's so many different pieces here. Um, I know a lot of people don't like Cory Booker. I know from, from what you've said from a policy perspective, you don't. It's ironic that Cory Booker is actually the Democrat that I probably like the most, um, and it has nothing to do with politics. It's personal. Um, I had a, a good friend and a former colleague um, and mentor, and uh, he spoke on my colleague's campus, and my colleague's wife at the time was in the hospital undergoing chemo and couldn't attend, and Cory Booker uh, called her from campus and then continued to call her afterwards and follow up, and I, I just saw some some actual care in Cory Booker there, but again, politics and policy-wise, definitely lots of problems. Jared Brown, in all honesty, I just, I, I actually like Jared Brown, but I just can't like anybody that stands next to Tim Ryan and doesn't laugh in his face constantly because Tim Ryan is just such a disgrace um, <laughs> that it makes it incredibly difficult. Um, Julian Castro, um, who I think, you know, again, was a rising star, but kind of saw that fall back. Uh, Gillibrand, um, Klobuchar, all of those groups. Uh, again, it's the question of what differentiates. I'm with you. Kamala Harris is definitely going to be a thorn for Republicans. Um, I don't think she has any chance of being successful. Um, and I think what's going to work against Harris is the fact that she just says things in a way that I think even have some Democrats, kind of like AOC at times, being like, not quite sure that's how we would have delivered that exact message. Um, it could have been possible. It's just such a laundry list right now. And And the thing about it to me is, Democrats have not learned from watching Republicans kill themselves in primaries um, because if they want to know how Donald Trump got to be the Republican nominee, it's because they started with a list of 20 people that were all basically the same, and they beat each other up, and then Donald Trump emerged. Um, yep. Which, again, I mean, that's that's got to be on somebody's mind at the DNC that if we do this and we self-attack, somebody's going to show up at the end and walk through the edge. And, again, I think that's when, you know, with Joe Biden, that might be what ends up happening. 
um, that all of these Democrats sit there and beat each other up for a year, and then Joe Biden emerges as the clean, grandfatherly, I will bring us together and go beat the evil troll um, kind of mindset, which, again, I mean, that kind of fits the Joe Biden life approach, too, of I'll get beat down and then show back up and just amaze you. Um, yeah, as, as much as I miss Joe Biden's antics and and quality humor during the Obama years, I do not want him running. I do not want him part of this. Uh, your point about Trump, you know, it was no surprise to me, really, that he won. Um, it was a little bit of a shock, just the sheer reality crumbling in front of my eyes. But it's no surprise to me that enough people had a message that resonated with his. And it's if the Democrats don't realize that populism has to be part of this next push, then they're dumber than I thought they are. And again, I, I would have to say that if I was voting for anybody today, I'd be looking at uh, Pete. I'm just going to say Pete, our, our South Bend mayor who thinks he's ready for the, the White House. Um, hey, if, if South Bend is not a microcosm of this country as a whole, I don't know what is. Yeah, again, who knows? He's right. It would be elite for anybody. There's no denying that. But At least an Indiana, Indianian could hand it off to another a Hoosier. Indiana. A Hoosier. Hoosier to a Hoosier. And I, think, I will say that about 2020. I think that is still the one thing that has not, not been talked about very much that I think will be interesting is if Mike Pence sticks around for a second run. Yeah, um, or, if, or if Mike Pence just overthrows the government and institutes a theological rule. Yeah, which again, so I always tell my Democratic friends, you may not like Donald Trump, but I'm not sure you'd like Mike Pence that much better. Um, yeah, you know, when Trump got elected, me and a bunch of my friends were, it was like, well, do we want an idiot that can't, maybe can't get anything done, or do we want, uh, in my eyes, an absolute psychopath that's probably much more calculated than Trump is? And again, I mean, it's one I have problems with some of Pence's policies, but from a government standpoint, you know, obviously I think he brings some some strength, and I think he was a great choice by Trump. I just, I still, I look at this Democratic list for 2020, and I'm still kind of staring at it while we talk, and, and I mean, I'm with you. It's uh, the fact that you like Elizabeth Warren is probably the exact reasons why I don't like Elizabeth Warren. Um, <laughs> the consumer protection side, I'm still a big fan of free will, and if you start racking up debt and sign for some of these predatory loans, you've signed for them knowingly, um, or at least somewhat knowingly, and I just don't don't see the, the problem there. But it's just a list of the there's nobody that even is somebody system. who's not sold on Trump that says I could get behind this person and feel better and feel like they're playing to the moderate. I want to know which Democrat is going to come out and play to the moderate right because they're up for the taking. And somebody has to do it. Yeah, I mean I I hope that the person that does end up being the best choice in my eyes waits a while because like I said the amount of time that we allow for campaigning is just an increased amount of time for you to say something stupid that, you know, remember or Howard Dean? To show up. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, Howard Dean got enthusiastic and he lost the lead because he, he was happy. Yeah. I mean, get the, get the hell out of here, right? Like, so I hope whoever does decide to join that I support is calculated about when they enter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's let some yearbook photos uh, crop up for the next, you know, five months or something and then, and then make some moves. 
Yeah, and again, I mean, I think, don't even get me started, and we won't talk about this, we'll switch, but the fact that this still so overemphasizes Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina through nothing but political tradition versus actually microcosms of the United States just drives me crazy. Um, yeah, uh, I I can't stand the election. we got to get to the battleground states early um, if we're going to continue with this system. I mean, let's start with Texas, Florida, and Ohio and really shake these things out in meaningful ways versus shaking hands in Ames, Iowa. No offense to Iowa State. Um, shout out to Iowa. Yeah, shout out to Iowa. You care. You, you matter for the next two years again. Um, so switching gears, one last kind of piece I wanted to talk to you, Zach, is obviously with you coming on and with your your political leanings, we've we've had a, a fair number of listener questions kind of come in because, as I mentioned, a lot of progressive listeners have been waiting for this moment, um, and a lot of right leaners have been waiting for this moment as well for different reasons, as you learned on the Facebook page. Um, so we have a few questions that I just kind of want to walk through with you and see how see how you'd kind of respond here in our last uh, seven or eight minutes. Um, and I'd actually start with a question from a, a listener that I think is the, the fairest way to begin. Um, and this listener asked for perhaps a discussion about what you view anarcho-communism as being and what you view it as not being. Uh, and they add the, the caveat that some would argue that anarcho-communism was never actually intended to work on a larger national scale. So how do you respond when you hear thoughts like that or criticisms like that? Well... First of all, anarcho-communist is just the easiest uh, buzzword that we were able to come up with for my beliefs. Uh, again, I think Marxian economics is the most accurate form of economics to identify contradictions and problems and uh, predict future crises in capitalism. Uh, as, as for why, just you know, one one background uh, beyond. The sheer, the sheer, uh, believability of what I read as far as Marxian economics is concerned. I find it interesting that the biggest names in Marxian economics are highly trained and well versed in all forms of economics. Whereas if you read, uh, neoliberal, classical, et cetera, economists, they don't, they're not schooled in leftist economics. They just, you know, Dismiss it outright. So I immediately see a an imbalance there between the two different economists, right? I see the Marxists as as having a better overall understanding and comprehension of uh, opposing economics. So that's why I I'm I'm Marxian in my economics, and so that's what leads towards the the communist label, right? Like we we largely associate Marxists with communism, communism with Marxists, etc. Um, I've also been very influenced by people in the anarchist sphere, uh, Noam Chomsky in particular, and uh, I consider myself anarchist in in some ways because I like uh, personal liberties. I enjoy the the organization at a smaller level, which is probably what this listener is is referencing, of non-hierarchical grassroots organization. Now, bouncing back to the the more uh, rigid socialist, communist, uh, Marxist elements of my beliefs, I don't think everything can be solved by local and small and non-hierarchical. So, in my mind, it's it's. I think anarcho-communist is a decent description because I want a combination of both classical 
you know, I'm I'm very sympathetic and uh, I'm very sympathetic with the Leninist and Trotskyist uh, line of Marxist thought. And a lot of that is what leads me towards large scale governmental uh, coordination with as much smaller anarchist based non-hierarchical organization at levels that don't necessitate large scale. Uh, so I, that's why I see, I see it as a combination of both. It has to be for progression in my eyes. There has to be massive change on both levels. People have to organize themselves, but we also have to take control of the, the largest sectors of the economy and of the government in order to, to make real strides on things, especially things like uh, global warming and climate change. We, without massive governmental interference, it's nothing's going to get done. And, and then the worst will possibly happen. Now, the one thing about that is, I mean, you're focusing more on the economic side, but a term like that, and again, I know that that's a term that we're, that we're using for you, even though there's more depth to, to what your, your belief system shows. A lot of folks affiliate that with a sense of acceptability of violence. Um, do you fall on that side in terms of getting to this end point? Um, and sort of the question is, if not, how do we get to it? We had a listener write in talking about, you know, what do you see as a viable transition from our capitalist system into that type of economic system without leaving destruction in its path? Um, so how do we get there? Well, you say destruction, I say progress. The, the, I, listener, uh, the listener says destruction. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> the, the royal you. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a pacifist in that I don't believe force should ever be used. I think force should definitely be used in order to bring about a better situation for the majority of people. I, you know, what constitutes violence? is is a very big question. I would say that the inability of most Americans to ever really raise themselves to a level of existence and control of their own economic and social life based on the inequities that we've got as far as wealth and power are concerned, that's a form of violence to me. So I'm opposed to that violence, and if it takes some other form of violence to get rid of that, then I, I support it. But that's not saying that um, I'm suggesting to go out and be physically violent to people. But, you know, this country loves to to act like they respect private property. And so any anything that constitutes the detriment of, of private property of the, of the wealthy, people would see as violence, and I'm all for that violence. Um, I think it's funny, like the black bloc and, uh, Antifa, you know, people are trying to paint these, these people as these crazy, violent protesters. You got to understand that, you know, protest at this point, you're supposed to, you're supposed to go to the police and get, get your permit. And then, and then you're going to walk down these prescribed streets. And that's not protest. That is a, that is a castrated version of something that used to be called protest. So you've got people destroying, you know, private property, breaking out Starbucks windows. One, they're insured. So who really cares? And two, it's because 
were not allowed to protest in any other meaningful way. So they they take direct action, and I support that as well. Yeah, I guess the pushback again is, what does that mean for for order? What does that mean for the individuals who could be impacted that aren't? Again, it comes back to me, and we've talked about consumption on the other show, um, but it comes back to, yeah, Starbucks may be insured, but what does that mean in terms of what it causes as a trickle-down? Where does it stop between then meaningful protest and individuals taking to the streets and I'll go to the extreme and say looting because they realize that even though they don't have a cause, they can get away with whatever they want at that point because the state is in this state of disarray or disrepair or whatever it could be. And, you know, ultimately what ends up filling that vacuum and how quickly does it fill before we end up in, you know, as another listener pointed out, the idea of, you know, a post-apocalyptic world minus the zombies. Um, does it come down at that point to just private property? Does it come back to individual hoarding? What do we end up doing if we're actually depending on people's goodwill working for the common good versus for another actor? How do we get there? Well, the, the apocalyptic comment cracks me up because let me, let me just say that, that my vision of moving forward is uh, a very classical um, Marxist communist kind of view, and that is you know, moving more towards a, a democratic socialist country like Norway, Sweden, Denmark. They're doing it great. They're doing it fantastic, much better than we are on almost every index, unless you're talking, you know, the wealthiest tax rate, which I don't consider a viable complaint. Um, so I'm I'm for that first step. I'm for universal basic income. I'm for all of this and then potentially moving much, much further to the left uh, towards something, approaching something that we could call communism. The, the dynamics of a social change of that magnitude, no one can confidently say that they can predict what's going to happen or that they know human nature. I mean, People love to discuss human nature. People love to say that humans are greedy, but they're also often very, very uninformed as far as evolutionary biology, neurobiology, primatology, uh, anthropology, all of these sciences that contradict that sentiment that humans are greedy and self-centered completely. So I, I'm not one worried about uh, said breakdown of order after property relations change on a massive scale uh, because what drives people to loot is that they have nothing. So if they have something, people are much less likely to loot. It's, it's, a, it's definitely a symptom of capitalist uh, mode of production that we're in that, that people are as desperate and willing to result to things like that. So first, it's a much more foundational change. It's it's getting basic needs to people, basic needs uh, filled for people, and then beyond that, it's it's uh it's experimenting with with different different social constructions. You know, I mean, there's some very interesting things going on now with universal basic income. You can look at states like Kerala and in India where 
It's one of the poorest states in India, but it's one of the best uh, as far as healthcare, education, infant mortality, uh, et cetera. So, so there's there's different experiments going on. Venezuela, for example, uh, Bolivia, um, Uruguay. There's lots of different things that we need to look at and we need to learn from in, in order to institute this. Uh, so it's not it's not just this. Somehow we eradicate the idea of private property completely and then everyone's turned into this Hobbesian nightmare. Uh, the, the fact is, is that so much of biology and primatology points against that concept. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, there's obviously going to be any movement towards anything like this. And I mean, we talked about it with the Green New Deal. I mean, anything moving towards that more progressive piece is going to have to be introduced in a way that, again, can be palatable um, unless we're recognizing the the fact that it's going to be a, a seismic shift and come with those spillovers. Zach, you should definitely be looking at the Facebook page uh, once this episode airs because I bet folks are going to have a lot of questions for you um, to drive <laughs> further. Um, that's actually I do my be, best to not look at Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> for this, I'll find them and send them to you. We'll get them to you one way or the other, so make sure um, we get some follow-up if, there. If they're as pointed and, and brilliant as the does he wear a helmet and when did he come down with his mental illness question? Then I, then I might have to swoop in and see. Say it. hi. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support's obviously what keeps us going and we do appreciate everybody out there for, for supporting us in these, these efforts. Subscribing to the show also helps out. You can do that right in the podcast app on the, uh, typically it's triangle shape. Uh, word of mouth is our best advertising, and feel free to leave reviews on iTunes especially. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or just random thoughts you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we go, where we post throughout the week is facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back on Saturday with a new show for you. We hope you'll join us then.